This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Rear Admiral Julius Caesar. Rear Admiral Caesar is, uh, has had a career as a surface warfare officer who graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy. He earned a Master's of Business Administration from the College of William Mary. He is a Massachusetts Institute Technology Seminar Fellow in Foreign Politics, International Relations, and Natural Interests. He also attended the Naval War College. He is a trustee at the Navy War College Foundation and Strategic Advisory. He's uh, Academy in Securities. He was recently awarded the Distinguished Graduate Award from the U.S. Naval Academy Alumni Association and Foundation. Matter of fact, there's only 110 U.S. Naval Academy Distinguished Graduates out of 69,000 living graduates. So first off, it is an honor to have you on the programs today. Thank you very much. Uh Appreciate uh, the uh, the invitation. So, sir, I have to ask you: uh, if somebody was to ask you to describe your leadership style, what would you say? Well, with a name like Julius Caesar, I always like to joke that I'm a benevolent dictator. But uh, in truth, uh, uh, I'm more uh, of I would call a inclusive leader. Uh, I like to get inputs, receive inputs from a wide variety. Of, uh, of of people before making a, uh, a final decision. And I think that's so important because in organizations, a lot of time the answers, and if you write answer, uh, talk to the right people, and I'm talking about up at the uh, highest part of the organization and even at some of the lowest part of the organization, often you can find the answer uh, that you need. That certainly takes time. It doesn't work in all situations, but I found that over the course of time, uh, that is the the best. And also, it allows people to feel that they have some ownership in the uh, organization uh, and that you get their buy-in as well by being able to uh, seek their uh, their counsel and advice. Do you ever alter your approach depending upon the situation audience, especially during stressful times? Oh, you, you have to. You, you, know, you don't change who you are. But in a, you know, in a situation, sometimes uh, an authoritative leadership style is needed, uh, particularly in a uh, turnaround situation or in a uh, dangerous situation where, uh, um, uh, you know, some quick action is, is needed. Uh, there, uh, in fact, I counseled a young, um, uh, young lady here a few weeks ago uh, who uh, had an authoritarian uh, leadership style but she was involved in quality control and quality of assurance uh, of some pharmaceuticals uh, and worked very closely with the folks that were producing that. And so the tolerance uh, uh, levels, uh, uh, you know, for pharmaceuticals is obviously very low, but then she recently uh, moved to another uh, group, a little smaller team, more self-motivated individuals. And she said, her authoritative style wasn't necessarily working with that group and that she needed to change to a more inclusive or more of a coaching style uh, because she, because of that group. And it's just like a sports team as well. Uh, If you've got a high performing organization, 
Um, you know, you just might need to tweak things here or there. Uh, if you've got a team that's, uh, uh, you know, two and 10 and you, you know, want to go to the playoffs, you might need to have a different leadership style. But that doesn't mean that you change who you are as a person as far as your integrity and your values are concerned. So you have had a, a very long distinguished career, um, worked for many different types of leaders. Do any come to mind that provide you provided you an important lesson, good or bad, or an event that also provided you an important lesson? Yeah, well, first of all, I think uh, my, uh, my parents taught me uh, a lot about uh, leadership of, of being humble, of being able to give back and being able to take care of other people. Uh, certainly most of my role models and mentors are, uh, are, are from my military background. Uh, I had a leadership instructor, a commander, Jack Fellows, who was a POW for in Vietnam for seven years. And I learned so much from him at a, uh, at a young age, particularly as far as resiliency is concerned. Uh, being able to, uh, you know, handle adversity. And certainly uh, uh, he did. So uh, in my, uh, you know, teens and uh, early 20s, he certainly had an imprint on me. Uh, Our former chairman of the uh, Joint Chiefs, Admiral uh, uh, Mike Mullen, uh, was someone who um, uh, became a mentor uh, that made sure that I had a seat at the table uh, and uh, he didn't have to do so. He was a four-star. Uh, I was just a, uh, a captain and it just made flag officer. But uh, the way that he included me in meetings and in things that he didn't have to uh, showed me how to be a, uh, a how to be a good leader. And then someone who'd inspired me that that thought that I could um, go to the next level was Admiral J. Paul Reason. He was the first African American four-star. Uh, 1965 Naval Academy graduate. And I remember meeting him early in my career on a pier down in Norfolk. And he put his hand on my shoulder, didn't know me from Adam, but said, you know, one day, son, if you stick around long enough, they might make you a flag officer. And I'll be darned if they didn't. And so I thank him for that, uh, you know, that encouragement, as well as the other uh, people that I mentioned. You know, speaking about diversity, you recently participated in a leadership forum with that same thing, strengthening our competitive advantage through inclusive leadership. And to me, that that would mean, you know, looking at uh, a more diverse organization. Tell us what that meant and what it means to you and, and what are the keys to successfully finding that competitive advantage through that inclusivity? To me, uh, diversity is leadership. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, in our political realm, a uh, controversial term. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we do that every day and we don't even think about it. Uh, we get opinions from other folks and it, it is a national security imperative uh, that we do so because we do have a our, our nation is based on so many diverse populations and so when we're in the military, particularly in our uh, uh, enlisted ranks, uh, it's so important that we understand different people's cultures, where they came from, uh, what makes them uh, tick, and in order to make them much better warfighters and also to make them um, 
much better citizens for our, uh, uh, you know, for our country. So uh, um, this was a, uh, a conference uh, that we had about uh, oh, about 200 or so uh, people that were there uh, from uh, all walks. And uh, basically, it is how to become better leaders in a very diverse uh, country and a very diverse military, as well as uh, a, a workforce. And again, to me, it's it's leadership is that uh, you've got to be able to motivate people and understand where they uh, come from uh, in order to uh, accomplish the mission. You know, not all leaders are as enlightened as, as it sounds like uh, the people attending that conference. Did you ever encounter obstacles as an African-American, you know, climbing the ranks to flag officer? Uh, I, I certainly did. I came in the Navy. I enlisted at 17. Um, and uh, um, uh, it was an interesting time in our country. Uh, we had our uh, uh, the, the Navy um, actually um, had some race riots on our ships. Uh, and it impacted operational readiness. And so, uh, you know, when, uh, um, uh, when, when things get tough, uh, boy, we focus on it, and uh, particularly diversity and, and, and things of that nature. And uh, I look at it kind of like, uh, you know, car maintenance. Boy, you, you want to put it off and not address it until something happens. And sometimes it can happen at, at the worst time. That's why we need to be able to look at it. But uh, one of the things as a 17-year-old uh, uh, coming into the Navy, uh, I enlisted and I went to uh, boot camp at Great Lakes. There was something that was subliminally that was happening that I wasn't aware of until a little bit later. And when I would stand in the child line or to get something to eat, there was always these pictures of uh, Naval leaders that were there. And I'd go by, you know, several days and then finally weeks and I look up all these pictures uh, on that on the wall, and uh, I didn't see anybody who looked like me. Uh, I didn't want them all to look like me, but I knew that if I saw some that looked like me, that one that organization, being the Navy, was was fair. That someone who came from my background, uh, that uh, man, they had that picture on the wall. That meant something. Uh, it meant that they uh, uh, valued me as an individual and that that organization was fair. And so uh, that bothered me. Uh, and uh, uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, I had a selfish uh, wish to be a picture on the wall so that I could inspire somebody else. And uh, I'm pleased to say that about 35 years later, actually nearly 40 years later, that uh, that selfish dream did come true with that. Uh, I do have my picture in the Pentagon. And again, it's not about me, but that if someone sees that, that that will inspire them that uh, that our organization is fair. So do you have any advice for somebody who's facing one of those challenges, uh, you know, that they're not being treated fairly? What would you say to them about, you know, maybe how to approach it? You, I know you do a lot of coaching. Yeah, I, I think one of the first things that I've always done is, one, I've looked introspective at myself. Am I doing anything wrong? Am I screwing up in any way, shape, form, or fashion? And I do a deep sense of introspection, and um, um, that's why it's important to have peers 
to be able to also look at that situation and say, uh, because it's easy to say some external force is why I'm not making it. But once you have done that self-examination, then you have to look within that organization or that uh, that person and uh, uh, look at one, what was that one? What's their motivation? And two, sometimes you've just got to be able to confront it. And uh, also to be able to have mentors that are outside of that chain of command or organization uh, that can advise you along the way. But it takes resilience and perseverance uh, in order to uh, overcome uh, that particular, uh, a particular situation. I'm speaking with Rear Admiral Julius Caesar, former Vice Director, Joint Concept Development and Experimentation, former Joint Forces Command Norfolk and DoD Strategy and Development, currently at NetApp. After the break, we'll talk about finding your authentic self in leadership. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Rear Admiral Retired Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the, or JC, was the former Vice Director, J9, Joint Forces, Norfolk, and currently the DOD Data Strategy Development at NetApp. Sir, in the last segment, we talked about leadership style and overcoming personal obstacles. Humility is something you see in so many successful leaders, and we certainly can see it in your approach. They are authentic in the way that they lead. What do you think about that, and how do you approach and keep yourself humble? My father said something to me very young. I didn't know what he uh, what he meant, but he said, you may meet the same people going up um, as you as you do going down. And um, as I, uh, you know, was in business and in, in the military, I began to uh, under understand that uh, a lot more. Uh, there obviously there are interesting contrasts in our personality uh, because uh, you know we're taught to be confident, uh, we're taught to be bold, we're taught to uh, you know be aggressive, particularly in our uh, younger years and particularly in the in the military. Uh, but I think the things that that ground you is that you have to say to yourself mentally, it's not about you. And I found uh, something that that helps keep keeps me uh, humble is being able to give back to other people. And uh, I think that's so important throughout our career. And, and certainly, you know, we want to make it to the top. We want to be that Admiral General. We want to be that CEO or, or director or so, uh, but uh, your career is a, is a marathon and not a sprint, and uh, nobody likes to uh, uh, be around the smartest person in the room, and you know it. You have had so many roles that affect so many people. What is the most important type of decision you can make as a leader of your organization? I think uh, the, the the single biggest one is being able to surround yourself and to pick the right people. That is so key, whether it is to pick someone to uh, lead a large business unit, uh, to command a ship, an aircraft squadron, uh, or uh, an army battalion. Um, being able to pick the right leaders is certainly key because once you get to a certain point, you have a mission to accomplish but you have to accomplish that mission through people. 
And so your skill set needs to change. And also uh, because typically most people who make it up to the top, they're, they've been good at doing, uh, uh, you know, their particular uh, uh, area of expertise. But uh, the ability to pick the right people to accomplish the missions or subset of that missions is so important and to be able to operate with the speed of trust as well. Because in picking those people, you have to be able to trust them as well. You, know, you talked about changing over the course of your career. Uh, did the way that you make decisions change over your career? Did in, And did you, do you make decisions by committee or did you as a leader just make them or did that change over time? In many ways, it, it changed uh, over time. Um, in some of my, uh, um, uh, I call them my, my younger days, I used to make a lot of decisions um, and, and things of that nature. But as you go up in organizations, you have a lot more stakeholders and shareholders, and you have to involve them in, the, uh, in those decisions as well. Uh, I've noticed in some organizations, particularly working in small business, the frequency, intensity, and duration of those uh, decisions was a lot, in many ways, a lot faster and uh, a lot uh, larger organizations. I worked in one organization that's about a $10 billion organization, military organizations that had to do with installations. Sometimes with things moved at a glacial pace, but in others, they move very, you know, very rapidly. And so you had to be able to shift gears and know when's the right time to be able uh, to do that, to uh, use that appropriate leadership style. I'm going to shift gears a little bit. There is a saying that, um, or at least I believe, that uh, companies don't make people successful. People make companies successful. Earlier, you mentioned about giving back and all about the people. How do you invest in people in your organization and those around you? I think, one, that is a key thing. And often, I think a lot of times those budgets get gets slashed, particularly in, in corporations, to invest in your people. I think the military does that very well. Uh, there are things like command leadership schools. Uh, there are uh, um, a lot of investment in, in me, particularly in the flag officer, was a two-week course that we had to take that you got to know yourself, your personality, and uh, what that was, were you an introvert or an extrovert? Um, and so the training, whether it's a day training or online training, uh, is so important. I work at a, a technical company, and uh, boy, we have some wicked smart people that are involved in AI, the cloud, uh, data management, data storage, um, software. And I think those things are so important. But one of the things that uh, that I help run there with our veterans group is the intersection of leadership and technology. And that a lot of these technical folks, uh, oh, they've been technical for a long time, but then they get 10 other technologists around them uh, in order to get something done or a new development or new application. How do you lead those people to do that? And so it's important either to have online courses or to send them places where they get to one, to know themselves, but two, uh, understand leadership principles. And particularly some of the things that we've been talking about is, boy, do you have an author, uh, authoritative style? 
you have a democratic style? Uh, is Are you in a transactional situation so that uh, folks can, one, sense the environment that's around them, and two, be able to act appropriately uh, to be able to, to do that? So I think we invest a lot in technology, but uh, I think particularly in the, uh, uh, in the corporate world, uh, we could do a lot better uh, as far as uh, uh, leadership is concerned and teaching people how to manage. You said something earlier in the show that really resonated with me. You said when you looked up at the photos when you were in the chow line and nobody looked like you. I've been a tech leader um, for 40 years around the Beltway. And many times when I walk into the boardroom, nobody else looks like me at all. You know, tech talent in, in the percentage of diversity and uh, our workforce in Silicon Valley still hasn't improved very much over 40 years. Um, how can we change that? How can we, you know, with the, it's almost a national security issue for our country with the lack of um, investment and the lack of diversity um, in our tech talent pool. What would you do to change that or, or how do you work on that? Well, there are a couple things. Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I, uh, uh, in another one of my uh, volunteer part-time jobs, I'm uh, with the uh, 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 shared interest group with the Naval Academy Alumni Association, uh, with Naval Academy Minority Association. And we spend a lot of time in our mission in investing in, in youth and particularly with STEM programs. And, you know, we're going down to the sixth and seventh grade where we're taking robots uh, in underserved uh, communities, wherever they are, uh, in order to start teaching uh, young, um, young men and women uh, about STEM, about uh, the opportunities that are in STEM. Uh, and there are, uh, in fact, we had some kids that were at a uh, STEM camp at the Naval Academy, but it, we need to extend it beyond that. And a lot of schools have those uh, programs. And so uh, we uh, invest in that. I think even parents can talk to their uh, children about, uh, you know, I've got five grandchildren and they're always looking at my phone and they're pushing it and want to see their pictures, but talk to them about, hey, how does that screen work? When you pushed it out and uh, expanded it, what was going on there? Well, how did it, you know, how did it, it store stuff, the picture? Where did it come from? Just to start stimulating their mind. But I think we need to do it at a much younger age, given the competition that we have from China, uh, from uh, uh, Russia, uh, from Middle East and other countries who are, uh, are doing this a lot better uh, than, uh, than we are. I, I, you know, you bring up China and, um, and having, you know, having a background and, and supporting, uh, you know, efforts around AI, they start uh, training uh, their kids in AI, like right in the first early years of elementary school. Do you think um, we need to change our, our education system to address that in general, to address this national security issue of, of the vacuum of lack of of people in, in tech? It's, it's no question. Um, I think uh, um, that if, first of all, it is a national security issue, uh, particularly with AI, that's a lot of statistics, it's math, uh, teaching um, 
you know, Python and different uh, languages at an early age so that when they get a little bit older, it's going to be like a second nature to them. But we need to look at across the board at uh, uh, I was on a committee to look at boy at the community college level, um, you know, what would be the right curriculum for a data scientist to go through all of that. Uh, that mass data. But I think it needs to go K through 12. Uh, I think we can do things at our community college level and certainly at some of our uh, institutions of higher learning uh, that uh, that's so important so that we have a workforce, not only from a uh, uh, you know defense point of view, but in finance and healthcare and uh, automotive across all of our sectors in order to uh, keep our uh, our country number one. I'm speaking with Rear Admiral Julius Caesar, former Vice Director J9, Joint Forces Norfolk and Data Strategy and Development currently at NetApp. Coming up next, we'll talk about leadership and culture. You're listening to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Rear Admiral Julius Cedar, former Vice Director J9, Joint Forces Norfolk, and DOD Strategy and Development currently at NetApp. Sir, let's take a step back. Let's talk about your background, your journey, and your your path to becoming a Rear Admiral and now Tech Director. Um, your career had many turns. Um, how can we, you know, Share with us how, how your step and, and how somebody might be able to follow in your footsteps. Um, well, first of all, I uh, was born in a small town in Radford, Virginia. Now that you asked me to go all the way back, but grew up in the inner city of, uh, of Cleveland, Ohio. And, uh, you know, I credit my, uh, my parents with, uh, with giving me a, a dream and desire and uh, inspiration to say that literally I could be uh, anything that I wanted to be. Uh, I think that was, um, uh, you know, was, was, a, was a key is that they gave me that inner confidence uh, to strive uh, better. And also uh, growing up as a uh, teenager during the, uh, you know, during the 60s, uh, you know, that was at the height of the civil rights movement as well. And so, uh, you know, seeing Martin Luther King, uh, seeing some of the, uh, uh, you know, riots and uh, injustices, and the, uh, you know, in the South, um, really um, in, inspired and encouraged me as, as well. And it was one of those things, uh, uh, one of the old civil rights songs is, don't want to let nobody turn me around. And so, you know, kind of growing up with that cultural uh, ethos, uh, certainly uh, the church was important uh, to me as well. And, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think, for any young man or, or woman, um, I call it uh, three F's equals R, is having faith, family, and friends equals resiliency because there are going to be some setbacks and you've got to, um, uh, you know, dust yourself off and uh, and keep, keep going uh, forward. But um, when I went through school, I played football um, and a, a scout, a coach from uh, the Naval Academy was there. My parents didn't have money to put me through uh, through college, and um, that seemed to be the path of least resistance. Is uh, uh, you know they they wanted me, helped me uh, through all the process and, and things of that nature. Um, 
I had a lot of good mentors that uh, when I was zigging, that they told me I should zag. And I would encourage any young um, person to be able to um, uh, to have some mentors um, to, uh, you know, to help guide you, guide you through. But a lot of things I think, uh, then Aileen, you know, that is, it's just grinding. It's just keeping one foot in front of the other. There is no magic, uh, uh, way to, to, you know, get things done other than I think just through hard work and through, uh, through dedication, uh, and having a uh, sense of humility, uh, and your integrity, which uh, which people will be able to uh, to see. So um, uh, that's kind of my story, and I'm sticking to it. Is faith, family, friends equals resiliency, and just hard work. And I mentioned it earlier: is your career is a um, is a marathon and not a sprint. And continue to have a five year plan to look at where you want to go. Um, and I think that uh, that helps you and becomes your guiding light. You know, there's a famous quote by uh, legendary consultant Peter Drucker, which says culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I don't believe he, he meant it that strategy is unimportant, but rather um, more of a powerful, empowering culture was a sure route to success. Do you agree or, or do you have disagree? Uh, I certainly agree to that. And part of that culture is just understanding uh, people and groups of people where they came from and what, uh, and what motivates them. And uh, um, uh, a lot of times we want, uh, you know, one size fits all. And, uh, you know, uh, working on the joints, I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, you know, I came up most of my career as a surface warfare officer. But at uh, which was driving ships, cruisers, destroyers, amphibious ships. But I got an assignment on an aircraft carrier and I, I knew aviators, but I'd never worked with aviators before. I learned a whole new culture, uh, even within the Navy, that I thought that I knew well. As I became more senior and you mentioned uh, my position uh, at the. Uh, Joint Forces Command that, that eventually went to the Joint Staff. Talk about a cultural change when not only did I have to work with, uh, I understood our Navy Navy folks, but all of a sudden I had to work very closely with Army, with Air Force. I understood uh, m- uh, Marines, uh, but also Coast Guard as well as um, uh, other agencies. So, and they all come with their own culture that I had to learn in order to accomplish the mission. And the same thing in my uh, example in my civilian life is uh, I've been involved in mergers and acquisitions of different companies, small companies and large companies. And boy, if you don't understand where those companies, you know, where, how those companies, uh, where they uh, uh, originated from, why they thought, why they did things the way they did, and if you didn't at least have a sensitivity to it, uh, you would fail as a leader. And so those are two examples, both in the military and in uh, uh, and in industry, where you've got to understand culture. And a lot of times, that culture is what were their beginnings and where did they came came from, and how do they uh, uh, emulate that today? And any leader 
has to have a sensitivity towards it because if I just come in with a swell way, with a service warfare officer way, I would have failed because I failed to take into account not only the other warfare specialties within the Navy, but the other warfare specialties within the other uh, armed forces as well. The leadership conference you recently chaired um, with the Naval Academy uh, um, Association, one of the topics was surviving or leading in the heat at adversity. Tell me what that means and uh, what pearls came out of that panel that you were on. Well, interestingly enough, uh, that panel uh, was uh, actually was made up by uh, uh, by uh, uh, by Marines. Uh, the the lead there was someone named Lieutenant General uh, uh, Sadler, um, and another uh, uh, general, uh, uh, Brigadier General Joe Medina, uh, was the moderator. But uh, and there were some other Marines there as well, and. Um, they had all served either in Fallujah or Afghanistan, and boy, their stories were 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 riveting um, as far as just how to um, how to lead. Uh, I think one of those things is as um, uh, soon as you um, you know you can plan and plan and plan, but boy, as soon as that uh, plan uh, comes in contact with the first bullet, it goes out of the window. Um, it's kind of like a Mike Tyson story is, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, you plan for a fight, but boy, that goes out of the, out of way soon as you get punched in the nose, but that planning was important because you plan for that. Uh, the other is how to keep calm under adversity because you did train, you did plan for it and, um, you had to go through it. And so training came out of that was very important. Uh, going through various scenarios uh, was uh, was very important, but also to keep a focus on your people as well uh, came out of that was important. And, and maintaining your integrity and your cool uh, as much as possible uh, during those times of adversity, not only in a military situation, but we see those things happen in business situations as well. And I think that those... Uh, those principles, um, uh, you know, keeping your cool, maintaining your integrity, uh, taking care of your people and train for every scenario uh, cuts across, I think, all walks of life. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aline Black, and today I'm talking with Rear Admiral Julius Caesar, former Director J-9, Joint Forces, Norfolk, and current DOD strategy and development at NetApp. Coming up next, we'll get um, we'll hear JC's advice to the next generation of leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Legend and Government on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend and Government on Federal News Network. I'm Eileen Black, and today I'm talking with Rear Admiral Julius Caesar, former Vice Director, Joint Forces Norfolk, and current DOD strategy and development at NetApp. Sir, you had a very long, distinguished career in the military. And let me say up front, thank you for all your service. But you've had many different roles. So tell me what your favorite role have been. Oh, I had a, a, a lot of favorite roles. Uh, I will share with you one of my uh, um, uh, first roles was, uh, uh, was I was in command of a, uh, of a unit. Uh, and uh, I almost failed. 
I don't like talking about failure, but I almost failed. But I learned something from it. And it was uh, actually uh, uh, back in the uh, 1990s. Uh, it was a period of integration of women. And I was assigned to a unit. Uh, this was a reserve unit that uh, was 90% uh, women were in that unit. I had never been in a unit or situation uh, with, uh, with, with women. I thought that I was a, a, a good leader, uh, but I was failing because all the things that I uh, uh, knew in leading um, uh, males um, was, uh, and, and this goes back to what we talked about earlier, uh, you know, culture is all of these were, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, very uh, uh, senior folks um, and, uh, and, and everything. But I, I was very stilted in my leadership style. And it was at a point in the Navy where there was uh, um, a lot of tension. It was uh, during a tailhook uh, situation where there was some, uh, uh, you know, issues within our culture at the time. And uh, I had to learn a, a, a new language. I had to learn how to, uh, uh, you know, talk a little bit, uh, you know, differently, but still get the same thing done, focus on the mission. But one of the things that I was able to do, and I think it goes back to uh, my leadership style, is I had some friends and, and mentors that, that were female that I talked to them about. And I said, hey, I'm failing. What am I, what am I doing wrong here? Um, what do I need to change in my style? And um, they gave me point blank some very good uh, good pointers. And wouldn't you know that our operational readiness, the things that we were supposed to do around the country, just shot up two hundred percent. But it takes um, being able, and that's where humility comes in, to one have the right mentors that you can go to realize the situation that you were in and uh, um, and having the right people to be able to talk to about the situation. And so I learned so much from that uh, experience and that, uh, you know, we won uh, uh, one of the, the best, uh, you know, best unit uh, award. Took us a year or so to do, do that, but it was just a minor uh, things that that needed to to happen in order to uh, um, uh, for that to go. So I learned a lesson from that to, of course, to be more inclusive, to uh, uh, not be afraid to speak to your uh, uh, you know some of your leaders, even if they don't look like you or they're from uh, uh, you know some other area. Um, and uh, again, uh, I know Aileen, you have a West Point uh, background, but uh, my idea of leadership and diversity is working with or hiring a West Point graduate. So I just say that, and uh, it's not even December. But I love all my uh, all my Army folks as well. But again, uh, that was a learning experience for me. Well, we we know the Army is going to win the Army Navy um, game this year anyway, but uh, we won't go there. No. <laughs> so you currently work in the tech sector. You're working for for NetApp. Um, in the recent conference you were in, there was, uh, it was a very interesting uh, topic in one of the, the sessions. It was uh, a section about uh, taking learned battlefield leadership lessons to the private sector. So tell us about your role at NetApp and, and how, how that works. How, do you, how have you taken the battlefield lessons to work? <laughs> 
So a couple things. Uh, NetApp is a global company, about 12,000 people, uh, about uh, six billion in revenue. We are primary data storage, data management, AI, and uh, in cloud computing, and obviously software. Uh, based in Silicon Valley, so a very high tech company, a leader in, across the board in um, in supporting not only uh, DoD but uh, but our primary business is uh, global across automotive industry, uh, health, uh, and uh, financial sector. Um, so uh, I think that, that, and this is for veterans, and I work closely with our veterans group, is that uh, one, integrity, uh, bringing that to the table is something that is so important. And that's something that all veterans uh, uh, bring. A laser focus on our mission. That's one thing that I think military folks bring to the table is uh, is is what's what's our mission uh, and obviously in uh, in the civilian sector it's revenue it's sales it's earnings and so um, being able to have a clear vision of uh, of what is expected is I think private companies could do that a little bit better and I think in articulating that uh, to uh, to veterans Um and so we talk about, uh, you know, you know, leadership a lot and a lot of tech companies, though. OK, that's real good. But, man, how does that, uh, uh, th- you know, how does that work with my software or Kubernetes or uh, all these other, uh, you know, kinds of, of technologies or, um, you know, uh, moving to the cloud? And so um, the military brings uh, and veterans bring a lot to the table one of the things, though, that we need to be able to understand is the language of business as well. And that's one reason that um, I went back to get an MBA and someone said something to me one time, says, JC, you know a lot about the military and leadership, but you don't know a darn thing about business. So you need to go back to school. And so I did. And to and they actually put me through school in order to be able to do that. And so it's uh, and again, it goes back to the cultural thing. You know, military veterans, we have our mission-oriented focus, but we don't understand the language of business. And sometimes business, they will say, hey, thank you for your service, but they don't really understand what makes us tick. And so we have to be able to blend a lot of those cultures. And that's one of the things that I spend a lot of time just coaching both on the uh, business side but also military veterans so that that transition is uh, is a lot easier. So you've been in decades in, in uh, military uh, service. You've now uh, a very successful tech executive. What's next? I just have to keep moving. I think giving back is going to be next. Uh, um, I don't plan. I don't have any plans right now to slow down, uh, not unless someone wants to slow me down, but um, you know, I, I like spending time with my family. Um, I like spending time with my uh, grandchildren and my children that I mentioned uh, earlier. But it's uh, trying to get back to that next generation, um, being able to teach them the importance of, of giving back. Um, a lot of our Gen Zers, uh, a lot of them talk about, uh, you know, mental uh, uh, stress and, and duress. And uh, just being able to uh, work with them, I spent a lot of time with midshipmen at the uh, at the Naval Academy, um, coaching them 
but talking about things like their integrity, thinking about uh, character, uh, which helps build them up for uh, things, uh, uh, you know, their ad- adversity that they will certainly will face, will f- uh, will find. Uh, but uh, like I said, I have no plans to slow slow down. And uh, I think uh, giving back to young people and trying to impart some uh, uh, wisdom and some things has helped me out, uh, keeps me motivated, gets me up in the morning. Sir, speaking of wisdom to the next generation, your career and your success has truly been inspirational from so many different perspectives. Any final pearls of wisdom you would uh, say to your 18, 17-year-old self uh, before you enlisted into the Navy? Well, I think um, I, I think a couple of things. First of all, I tell him, hey, everything worked out okay. Uh, not necessarily according to plan, but we got there. But uh, I think um, I think going back is you got to have something that's larger than yourself, okay? Um, and that was imparted on me, uh, you know, from my parents. And again, going back to I call it those three Fs: faith, whatever that system is, family, uh, whatever that background is to draw strength from, and to make sure that you have good friends and good friends and peers who are going to encourage you along the way and not ones who are saying you're not going to accomplish your dreams or you're no good. And man, you shouldn't, um, you shouldn't do that. And uh, luckily um, all of those things have lined up for, for me. And uh, because uh, you're going to have setbacks, there are going to be things in your life and resiliency is the key, but you got to have something higher than yourself and giving back. And I think that motivates you and gives you the, at least it gives me the uh, energy to move forward. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government. My guest today has been Rear Admiral Retired Julius Caesar, former Vice Director J9, Joint Forces Norfolk, and current DOD Data Strategy and Development at NetApp. Sir, it has been a pleasure having you on the show today. I want to thank you for your very valuable service to our nation and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. Thank you.